normally conditioned American, been trained to kill, then to have no memory of having killed. Without memory of his deed, he cannot possibly feel guilt. Having been relieved of those uniquely American symptoms, guilt and fear, he cannot possibly give himself away. But our Raymond will remain an outwardly normal, productive, sober and respected member of the community. His brain has not only been washed, as they say, it has been dry clean. Some folks are born, made to wait to fly. This is the Manchurian Candidate Retrospective Series from Now Playing Podcast. Why? Why is all of this being done? What have they built you to do? Hosted by the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human beings I've ever known in my life, Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. You sure you want to do this? Absolutely. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. How can you talk to me this way? Listener discretion is advised. All right, dear, run along. The grown-ups have to talk. The taxman gives him the key to the land. And what the wild is nothing left for school and hell. Yeah, me. Today, we're discussing The Manchurian Candidate, starring Frank Sinatra. Platinum headphones at this time. This motherfucker's in everything we did. Die Hard, <laughs> Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> and we've loved both of his movies so much. Lawrence Harvey, Janet Lee, Angela Lansbury? What? <laughs> the Teapot? I mean, Murder, She Wrote. That's all I know her from. I, I guess she was the voice of Mrs. Potts. Henry Silva, James Gregory, directed by John Frankenheimer. Some people are lovable. Some people are not lovable. I am not lovable, but I am Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, and no, I'm not Arabic. (laughs) Happy Election Day, American listeners, and everybody, right? It's exciting to uh, experience people doing their civic duty, coming out, unifying together at the ballot box, getting diseases. (laughs) Oh, no, I, I voted by mail. I know a lot of voter fraud that way, but yes, I mailed in my ballot weeks ago. I went and voted early at our local courthouse more than a month ago at this point. So Exactly. But I'm still in suspense, you know? It's like a big cliffhanger. What's going to happen when the new season begins in January? Yeah, we were all shocked four years ago. I'm not making any assumptions this time. Oh, no, and I don't know that we'll get an answer soon. It should be said, obviously, we're taping this show before we know the results. We'll have the next show out before we know the results. We just know it's been a crazy time, right? It's just a weird time to be alive in America. It's politics and COVID and what have you. We were trying to think of a way to acknowledge that weirdness, and I, I guess Manchurian Candidate, the granddaddy of all political paranoia films, feels like the right two-off to do. I was wondering, as I watched this, we discussed doing films about paranoia for Election Day, and I sort of knew what the Manchurian Candidate was. I saw the remake, I'll, we'll talk about that next week, but I barely remember it. But I knew what Robert Downey Jr. was referencing when he called Winter Soldier the Manchurian Candidate in Civil War. I mean, I know that much. But when thinking about election movies, I'm like JFK or All the President's Men or... Or election. I mean, swing vote. You want to do swing vote, Arnie? Sure. Let's 
Let's just forget all of this. <laughs> Wag the dog is like one of my favorites. Why Manchurian Candidate out of all election movies? Come on, Bullworth. Bullworth, yes. When you put it like that, why out of all of them? Yeah, there's a lot of movies. What I would say is the concept has never left us. That as soon as it appeared in the 1959 novel, we have always been holding on to the idea that someone that looks like a patriot is designed to lead us could actually be working for the enemy. I mean, even recently, Obama and his foreign birth and, you know, he was not American and all of that stuff. He was the Manchurian candidate. Now the Steele dossier says Trump is the Manchurian candidate. You hear it every election cycle that what we are putting forth is in fact not what it pretends to be. Yeah, Joe Biden is going to bring in the reign of China if elected. Right. I thought it was the Ukraine. I thought Trump was bringing in China. I can't remember who's working for who anymore. Trump is Russia. Biden is China. I thought Trump was also China. You're not listening to Trump's speeches then. It's all about Biden cozying up with China. Yeah, whatever you think it's going to be, the premise of a Manchurian candidate is that they are working in secret with, I mean, again, this is the movie that pioneers the deep state, right? This is a concept that actually start with liberals. People actually believed that the FBI, the CIA, they killed Kennedy. They did all of these things behind there. The hippies knew first, and now it's become trendy. Everyone can agree no one trusts government anymore. I think this is where it really begins here with the 1962 movie and to a lesser extent the 1959 novel. So you're saying that the JFK assassination is the original QAnon? QAnon, no, because QAnon is craziness. JFK was not ordering child sex slaves at a pizza place. Yeah, I think that what JFK has opened was the idea that it could have been anyone, including inside. That it could have been an inside job was something nobody was willing to consider until things came out. I think this concept is so normalized today. I've never seen this original one. I've never seen the remake, but I knew what it was all about. I mean, come on. They, they even worked this into James Bond. Whatever one had that Madonna song, that awful one, like Die Another Day. Yes, there you go. I think there's three things that made it relevant at its time and, and was a reason why it was a grabber in its day. Although I want to put it out there, the book didn't sell that well. The movie didn't do that well. I read that the book is supposed to be awful. I read it. Well, we can talk about it. It's largely the same. I wouldn't call it awful. I would say that it doesn't focus on some of the things that the movie focused. It was shaped to be a movie, obviously, by the screenwriter. But uh, three things come up for me when I think about Manchurian Candidate and what it would have meant at that time. First and foremost, brainwashing. That was what communists did to you. It originated from a Chinese word that means cleansing of the mind. And we were seeing it, that American soldiers were coming home from the Korean War, talking nonsense, anti-American sentiments. And we believe that Chinese communists had brainwashed them. 70% of our POWs were forced to record these anti-American confessions about what they did on the battlefield, most of which total lies and all propaganda so it could be broadcast on the radio and erode morale. And when they got back, you thought, oh, well, you don't have to say this anymore. They made you say that. They continued to say that. So there was a sentiment that communists, once they get a hold of you, specifically Asians, they will warp your mind and they will turn your patriotic neighbors into pod people. And so that was a big theme. Did that plot ever make it into MASH in all those seasons? I didn't. I was in a big MASH washer. I can't tell you, but I don't think so. It's also the first movie to take on the other side because there was so much red scare paranoia. Some would say that the cure was worse than the problem itself. Senator Joseph McCarthy, his communist witch hunts, 
Hollywood was destroyed by that. Lots of people lost their job. No one wanted to evoke his name, even though the movie is coming out eight years past McCarthy's heyday. This is the first one to talk about what he did and putting forward. Obviously, Senator Joe McCarthy is a lot like the Senator Isselin that's in this film. And so they basically were able to comment on a really painful moment that nobody wanted to talk about. And of course, the big one is that one year later, JFK gets assassinated by a lone gunman that many people feel like was a Manchurian candidate that was programmed by somebody, Cuba, Russia, Vietnam, the CIA, the FBI, you name it, but that he was acting under the orders of some cabal and killed our president. What I didn't realize is that this movie was banned in the United States or pulled, not banned by the government. United Artists wouldn't distribute it after JFK's assassination. I mean, there's a lot of similarities here with the sniper rifle and everything. And it wasn't until the 80s that this really hit its stride. And I guess that's why I know about it as a concept is because of the 80s. And I'm surprised that, you know, okay, I understand why people might shun it, you know, after the JFK thing. But for those first two, like, the fact that this was a failure initially upon release, like, do people just not want to be confronted with these ideas of American politics? I think that's exactly it. We weren't there yet. Eisenhower era is largely remembered somewhat mythically. I'm not going to say everyone was having a good time. We can definitely look at groups that were being subjugated and not having a good time. But largely, we're remembering the 50s as a time of happiness, prosperity, and a belief that America was right, rightfully, had taken the central stage in world politics and could do no wrong. And so it was the loss of Camelot, the myth of what JFK represented, that really started the chain reaction that created the tumult of the 60s and everything that came afterwards. So yeah, I think this movie, if you say nothing else about it, is at the forefront of a sentiment that wouldn't become popular for another five to 10 years. And the book just didn't sell that well. It got some good critical notices. It's written by a Hollywood publicist, Richard Condon. The main difference, I'll put it this way, when you read the book, it's all about Raymond. Ben Marco, the Frank Sinatra character, barely factors into it. I mean, I didn't even notice him until the last couple pages of it, really. It's all about Raymond, the family history. You learn about what happened to his biological father and the mother's whole story. They spend it all on the Manchurian candidate. And there is no hero that's going to kind of save the day until the very end. Yeah, I guess when you cast Frank Sinatra in a role, he's got to dominate the screen. I I don't know enough about Frankie from that time as to even realize which character he was playing until after I was done watching this. He was offered whatever role he wanted. It, the movie only got made because of his involvement. He was friends with JFK. No studio wanted to make this because they thought, I mean, it's just worth pointing out, America was trying to hash out things with Russia and Cuba, and they thought putting forward a movie that demonized Russia could undermine everything. Like, they just didn't want to touch it. Why do we want to make this movie? So it was like the original The Interview, that which we didn't want to spark things with North Korea with that film. A little. Uh, but it took Frankie, who is at the height of his career, calling up his good friend Jack Kennedy to say, hey, I'm going to do this movie. And Kennedy was like, cool, who's going to play the mother? 
And Frank was like, we're going to get Lucille Ball. Like, that was the whole plan. Okay, that that would have been less shocking than who they got. Maybe because I didn't know Angela Lansbury did anything besides Murder, She Wrote, which was a show when it came on when I was a kid. I could not turn the channel fast enough. I didn't want to watch some show about this old woman solving crimes, but I had no idea she had a movie career. I had no idea that she could be a villain like this. She had a modeling career. I didn't realize that, but... Marjorie, when I was like, oh, Angela Lansbury's in this, Marjorie started showing me photos of her modeling career where she looked totally different. I'm like, I can't believe Jessica Fletcher looked hot. Yeah, she goes all the way back to the 40s, the original Gaslight. She had a similar role that she does in this. She's kind of villainous in the shadows, controlling things, doing that kind of thing. So, yes, this is a very big shock to you if you think of her as a warm and fuzzy presence. But to me, this is the Angela Lansbury movie. This is always what I think of for her first. It is kind of her greatest moment. She's fantastic in this. Yeah, I I think that this is, if you've seen the movie, this is what you'll think of. If you haven't seen the movie, maybe you think of Beauty and the Beast or Murder, She Wrote. I'll still be thinking Murder, She Wrote. I mean, that's just ingrained. And she's, she was only three years older than Lawrence Harvey, who's playing her son in this. Like, yes. they, they really aged her up. Right. But she, yes, they didn't go with Lucille Ball. She was obviously a bigger star. Frank Sinatra decided he couldn't play somebody that had been brainwashed. They just didn't think that that would work. So they went with a British actor, and that meant we want to get a, a British mother as well. So I think choices were made, but all because of Frank. Again, his stardom, him signing on. John Frankenheimer, who was now thought of as a great director, at that time was a TV director, very young, 31 years, had just been kicked off Breakfast at Tiffany's. Like He was supposed to make that with screenwriter George Axelrod, and then they brought in Audrey Hepburn, and Audrey said, who's this Frankenheimer guy? He's gone. He does TV. I'm a movie star. Get me Blake Edwards. And so the screenwriter and the director were just looking for another project. They were like, well, let's find something else if we can't do Breakfast at Tiffany's. And they land on this novel that they liked, even though it wasn't this big hit. And then they got Sinatra interested and they got some money, shot it in 42 days, brought in a real hypnotist to try and help them and try to come up with some innovative techniques with the camera. Again, this director comes from live television, so he was thinking about how to incorporate that in here. And it came out in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Nobody really went to see this. It wasn't considered fun entertainment. I think the real deal breaker was, why would you want to go see a movie where the world is in such paranoia and peril when the world was in such paranoia and peril? That just killed them. So they got two Oscar nominations out of it. No wins. Was Frankenheimer nominated for this? Because I, I have questions about, I've heard that he's this great director. I've seen this film. I'll, I'll share my opinions at the end. But he also did The Island of Dr. Moreau. And like, I watched that documentary and they were all super excited that they got Frankenheimer. And then apparently he was a huge ass on set. And he's like, let's just get this film done. I always think that's very unfair to pick the very worst thing on someone's resume and say, that's who you are. I mean, yes, that's at the end of his career. Well, I don't know. I've seen, I've seen what is perhaps the best and perhaps the worst of his. And where does he fall in that spectrum? Yeah, I I would say that he is considered in the 60s and 70s, a very innovative director. In the 50s, live television format. Again, if you're going to do From Here to Eternity or something live audience, like a play, and you got to film it, he came up with interesting techniques to make it exciting and capture the performance. and, And again, work with the idea that like there's no mistakes, everything gets caught. So I think that he is considered someone that helped bring the excitement of like cinema verite and video into the movie theater. 
I was wondering about that because, uh, again, I'll preview some thoughts. We talked about with Panic in the Streets, like when it comes to the 50s, and this is 62. I mean, it, it's still a product of that era. Like, I don't really like American films from that time. I watch more foreign, and this almost does feel like something more European. It feels much more experimental. It feels like Orson Welles. It feels like Alfred Hitchcock. And it feels like someone that, yeah, wants to move the camera around and play and do some crazy editing that just wouldn't have been invoked in a studio sensibility movie it's a hippie movie before there were hippies i saw it in 1988 it did get a big push on vhs Uh, that was really where it became celebrated as a classic up to that point i think it was a curiosity and i remember thinking it was a new release on the blockbuster shelf i don't think i knew it was a black and white film from 1962 (laughs) but i remember thinking it was very cool i remember thinking that yeah i don't like old films but this one didn't feel stuffy. This one had an edge to it that was that was interesting. And so it held my interest. I've seen it, of course, many times since. But I hadn't seen it in a while. It's probably been since the last Jonathan Demme 2004 movie came out. I probably haven't seen it in the last 16 years. I've never seen it before. I mentioned I've seen the remake. I saw it on a flight. Great watching conditions when you're on an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. And not even, like, where I was able to bring an iPad. It was being shown on the airplane back in the day when you couldn't pick what you watched, so... You had to rent the headphones, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have very little memory of that at all, so basically, I'm coming in a complete newbie beyond knowing the concept. I'm pretty similar, like I said. I haven't seen either of these, but I knew the concept well. Like, I kind of knew where the movie was going to go. I, I didn't... We'll talk about it. The way it gets there is what's interesting to me. Yeah. Arnie, you're going to start us off, and we'll discuss who this Manchurian candidate really is. Sergeant Raymond Shaw returned from the Korean War a hero. Shaw, played by Lawrence Harvey, was given the Medal of Valor for rescuing his platoon from capture. In truth, though, Shaw was captured, along with all his men. They were flown to Manchuria, where Dr. Yen Lo, a Chinese scientist from the Pavlov Institute, was testing his new form of brainwashing. He demonstrates to the communist Russians, Koreans, and Chinese military that he can keep all these troops in a trance and that Shaw will follow any order given. This is demonstrated when Lo has Shaw killed two of his men. Back in the States, years later, none of the platoon have any memory of their capture, But all, excepting Shaw, suffer recurring nightmares that show Shaw killing the men. These nightmares especially bother Major Bennett Marco, played by Frank Sinatra. Marco remembers Shaw as a cold jerk, but when asked, Marco and every other troop that was captured repeat the same words. Raymond Shaw is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life. Marco goes to see Shaw to investigate these weird happenings, and he strikes up a friendship with the man who confesses to Marco that he fell in love once with Jocelyn Jordan, played by Leslie Parrish. That romance was ruined by Shaw's domineering mother, Eleanor Islin, played by Angela Lansbury. Eleanor married Shaw's stepfather, Senator John Islin, and pulls every string to help Islin's career progress. She prods Islin into being an alarmist, claiming communists have infiltrated the Department of Defense. As Jocelyn was the daughter of Senator Thomas Jordan, one of Iceland's rivals, Eleanor ruined that relationship. Slowly, Marco begins to peel back the truth about Shaw and what really happened in Korea. Shaw was made a sleeper agent, a hitman for the Communist Party. Whenever he'd see a Red Queen playing card, Shaw would accept any given command. 
He was to be the perfect killer as he'll have no memory of his actions. Shaw gets a moment of happiness when his mother relents and throws a party for Shaw to reunite with Jocelyn and the two elope. But things sour when Shaw is ordered by the communists to kill Senator Jordan. The murder is witnessed by Jocelyn, who Shaw also kills. With his mission complete, Shaw has no memory that he's the murderer, he just knows his wife is dead. Marco, along with the FBI and CIA, uncover Shaw's programming and Marco is able to break the control. Shaw pretends to go along with the next orders given to him by his handler, who is his mother. She is head of the Communist Party in the United States and angling to get her husband elected president so communists can dominate the USA. For this to happen, first Jordan had to be killed. This guaranteed Senator Iceland the nomination for vice president. To bypass the VP role, Eleanor orders her son to kill the presidential candidate during the party's national convention at Madison Square Garden. Shaw pretends to go along with the mission, but from his sniper's nest, Shaw kills not the presidential nominee, but his stepfather and his mother. Then he turns the gun on himself. Marco realizes Shaw really was a hero for the sacrifices he made to stop communism, as credits roll. So Stuart, you said this is coming outside after McCarthyism. To me, this seems like a big dose of the Red Scare. Look, communists are in our government. Well, I mean, one thing that should be pointed out was McCarthy wasn't totally wrong. There was a reason to be afraid of communist Russia. There was things happening. Khrushchev was banging his shoe at the <laughs> UN and threatening us. And we failed to take over Cuba and, and give it back to the mobsters. And things were going very, very bad. So I do think that there was a reason for people to be afraid of what was happening internationally. I think this movie makes the case that this is just another form of brainwashing that the right was doing at the same time that the left of the communists were doing. That both sides will get you in the end is, I think, the theme. And another thing that I think, again, this movie pioneered, I talked about really liking it in Dr. Strangelove, the idea of sex as the coercion, that all of this Cold War stuff is really about getting laid, is an idea that they start right off at the beginning here in Korea 1952, all these U.S. Army guys at a Korean whorehouse, maybe being conditioned? Yeah, I was pretty surprised by this. Maybe this carousing is getting them ready for their Chinese captors? You will see it uh, throughout this movie. The women play a role in conditioning the men and keeping them in line with this head shrinking. Yeah, but we see here Shaw comes in. He's the, the sergeant. Right away, we, we know no one likes him like because he's making them all leave the brothel. They're not going to get laid that night. And he's turned off, too. You can just tell that he's like, ooh, women, all of this. Yes. The book was woke <laughs> enough to actually call out, is he a homosexual? Here, they can't use that language. I was wondering that throughout this film. Like, there is a vibe. He plays it as such. I thought he would be, because that was one of the things about the communists, is they were fey. If you were homosexual, you were probably a communist. I remember that from the Red Scare movies of the 50s. And just the stereotype of the overbearing mother, this is the most overbearing mother, like, there's definitely a subtext there. Even in the book, it's not even subtext. She will ruin the relationship by telling the girl he loves that her son is a deviant homosexual. So again, the idea is she's trying to keep him sexless. She'll dress him up as a priest later, and she will have sex with him to cement the deal. So there is very much the idea that as long as her boy is a virgin, it is under mother's control. And he's playing that role right now. We are seeing him gather the men and then head out into 
Well, I mean, it's actually Franklin Canyon. This is an area I used to hike around a lot. I recognized it, actually. It is where they have shot other, yeah, like MASH filmed around here as well. This movie didn't have a huge budget, so they couldn't go to jungle setting. They won't go to D.C. Almost everything here is filmed in L.A. And because I didn't, I, again, I knew about the concept of this film, but I wasn't familiar with every plot point. I was very confused by what happens here. We see them, they're going on patrol, and they got this interpreter that's telling them they got to go single file, which is like a bad idea. And then some other military shows up and like takes them, and then we go to opening credits. I'm like, what just happened? It was actually part of the marketing campaign of this movie that they're like, if you miss the first five minutes, if you're out there getting popcorn, don't bother. You won't understand this movie if you don't understand that this these American soldiers in Korea have been taken by the North Koreans. Except they don't look North Korean because I think they're Russians that take them. So I'm like, are those Americans that are taking them? Who are they? I was a little bit confused by this too. And at first I was wondering, their guide is saying, we have to walk single file or we're going to fall into quicksand. And I'm like, quicksand? That's okay. Maybe Korea has quicksand. I'm quicksand used to be in like movies all the time. I haven't heard about quicksand in quite a while in a film, though. I, I wonder if the remake will have quicksand. But I'm like, did the guide <laughs> intentionally ambush them? Oh, yes. We're going to see him very quickly shaking hands with the people who captured them. Henry Silva in an early role. He was always playing mobsters, usually Italians. But yeah, he has that kind of look that just he just looks devious. And so, yes, he sells out all of this troop and they're communist. I mean, we won't quite know in this moment. It's a jarring jump that we go instantly from their capture and being put on helicopters to Shaw coming home. Yeah, getting the Medal of Honor all of a sudden. Again, I'm like very confused with these opening scenes, which is probably what you're supposed to be. Yeah, I, to me, I associate that with Citizen Kane, like smarter editing than the audiences of 1962 would have been used to. They would have been very startled by the way that this picture is cut. And it, again, one of its two Oscar nominations was for editing. It lost probably deservedly to Lawrence of Arabia, but I do really like the way that this movie is put together. Yeah, no, I agree because it's such a, again, 1962, I wasn't expecting this kind of thing in an American film. Yeah, there's a lot of tricks in this one. I noticed the camera moves a lot and they really play with depth of field and not always successfully. I mean, there's a scene where Marco is in the front of frame, very large, and his troops are all in the background, far off in the distance, and they come up to him. He's a little bit out of focus. The depth of field wasn't entirely perfect to keep him sharp, but it was really interesting to see the that use of the frame in a movie this old. And when the camera moves, yeah, they didn't have the computer control. It's a little jerky sometimes, but... There's some interesting visuals going on here. Yeah, there's a two million budget and half of it is going to Frank. So like they, <laughs> they're doing what they can with a TV guy who's used to this kind of thing, who has dealt with technical problems and made it work in the live TV format. So and again, I think that he is inspired by what live TV can do in the freshness. And it is just cut. It's exciting. This movie has an energy that yeah, begs the question what happened that would turn what looked like an ambush in a really bad moment into something that, that would get Shaw this medal of honor that he doesn't even seem to want, that, that he's coming out of the plane looking sour and resenting the fact that there she is, mother is here with a sign declaring that he is Johnny Eastland's boy, when in fact he is going to be very insistent 
that the senator is his stepfather, not his biological father. Yeah, once we meet his mother and his stepfather, I'm like, oh, okay, so this is just a publicity stunt. This is to make his stepfather the senator. I, I don't know if he needs to get reelected, whatever is going on at this moment. But okay, I, I get it. This playing into my thoughts of politics that uh, I'm very cynical towards them. And yeah, these kind of military parades, they're there to score points with people voting for whoever they want. I was shocked at the amount of animosity Shaw has towards his mother and his stepfather. I mean, he comes back, he gets a Medal of Valor. We get this voiceover narration telling us how rare the Medal of Valor is. I don't know that we need all this voiceover narration at the beginning. There's a lot of data dumped at me that I don't really think matters that much. It was in keeping of the times. I think if you watch movies from the 50s, people just expect to be lulled into it uh, in this way. But you're right. This movie could be cut into an even more modern movie by leaving some of those tropes out. But when he's on that plane, which was Sinatra's real plane, I mean, they got that for the million dollars. Keeps the pain out of campaigning. I was surprised how much he hated his mother because he seemed like he was going to be the all-American boy. At the beginning in that club, I couldn't tell if his dislike and pushing away of the woman was a homosexual urge, you know, just not interested in women, or if he was that much of a Yankee doodle dandy that he wouldn't be lured by women who could be the enemy. But here I'm like, okay, there is something going on and he's going to go work for a newspaper and a communist. The fake news. Yeah, who actually isn't. I mean, he's actually Republican and what have you, but it doesn't matter. Everyone's a communist that doesn't like us. And, you know, it's worth pointing out. Obviously, I've mentioned already the senator is very much like Joseph McCarthy. It's funny today when I listen to some of Trump's bluster about communism and all of that. If you feel like there is a parallel between the two, there is a very good reason. There is a middleman that connects the two figures. Joseph McCarthy had a lawyer named Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn learned all of these tricks that Joe McCarthy did in front of the cameras and taught them to Trump in the 1970s. Trump actually turned to him as a father figure. So if you're wondering why Trump is going on so much about communism these days and accusing people of things that they accuse him for and not going along with facts, all of these are Roy Cohn tricks. The writer said, I wanted mother to be Roy Cohn. That is the idea that they're going here. And they nailed it because I won't call out specific politicians, don't want to upset half of our listeners, but I definitely felt like this is 1962, but it feels like 2020. A lot of the rhetoric I hear from politicians and the extreme accusations they throw out there. I I was shocked like how honed in this was to our times even. Yeah, again, the figure that they're parroting here, the two of them are people that had a direct and indirect influence on our current president. I hadn't thought about McCarthyism under our current political times. I mean, Joe Biden is a socialist who's going to destroy your suburbs. How are you not thinking McCarthyism? <laughs> Hellhole, I believe, you, that we're going to be living in. Yes. Uh, again, they, these things are very much Roy Cohn taxing, particularly the idea of like, if somebody sues you, you sue them for the same thing. Like the, there's so much that Trump learned, again, and wanted to. He needed a father figure because he wasn't getting along with his father figure. So again, I really do think that, yes, if this movie feels relevant and if you see a tie to it, 
part of that is because the ghost of Roy Cohn is still with us. Yeah, there's an ongoing joke throughout where Senator Iceland is like, there's 217 communists. Another time, there's 75 communists. And like, finally, he's like, we need to really settle on a number. Like, <laughs> yeah, facts don't matter. Like, I, we, we yes. can just scare them with Bravo and, and it's my, they get the emotion. That was McCarthy all over. And the joke that they have later about let's just take the ketchup bottle and make it 57. That was the number that McCarthy settled on. But he had all wide-ranging numbers. So they, they basically are calling out McCarthy in this movie as someone that just gets his facts from a ketchup bottle. That was an amusing scene to me. I, they're like, a number I can remember. And they just zoom in on that Heinz ketchup. And I'm like, I wonder if Heinz paid for that. But it's 57. But I think if you see this movie, the scene I always think of, I think most people reference, the thing you think about is that dream sequence. Because it is... It's masterful in the way that it teaches us how brainwashing feels to the people that it's being done to and what's really going on. It is masterful once I figured out what was going on. At first, we see Marco and he's having some kind of nightmare and doodoo doodoo we're going to go into his nightmare. And they're in a crowd of women, like high society women with fancy hats talking about flowers. I'm like, what is going on at this point? I will finally figure it out. And I agree. It is masterful, like how they do this editing and shoot this whole thing. Like it blew me away, but it was so confusing at first because I, I had no idea why we were seeing any of this. Oh, I love the camera work because... I'm wondering why we're in this horticulturist thing. I'm seeing the troops. I'm like, obviously, this is something to do with brainwashing. But the fact that we do a 360 and when it starts, it's this woman and it's all these old people. And then by the time we do the 360, it's suddenly all of these communists. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Again, the director coming from live television. How do we do this revolving set? There's no editing trick in this. They literally, as they're turning the camera, are turning the set around so that when we get back to them, it's a different cast and a, and a different look. They had to shoot this for six days, six different ways, because you have three different casts. You have the white ladies talking about hydrangeas. Then it becomes the black ladies through the vantage point of the black soldier. Which I got to say, I thought was brilliant. Like when we go into his nightmare, it's it's through his perspective. So they're all black women. up Again, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. And then, of course, the Chinese and the, the Soviet that are that are really the ones that are there that are that these soldiers have just been conditioned into thinking and then two different sets too you have the new jersey hotel and then you have the manchurian amphitheater so the juggle of that through editing and the moving set and and just frankenheimer's skill as a director i think again this is the highlight of the whole movie it starts right here i just i love it as confused I was with that opening, like, who kidnapped him? Why Why are they doing medals now? Like, once I got to this scene and it clicked what was happening, I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. I'm into this film. Yeah, I was shocked. Again, I was, the camera work is so astonishing that I'm really paying attention to it. And yeah, I guess as the set's revolving, they're nudging that camera up or down to keep the person's face, whoever's coming into center frame in the center vertically but when they came all the way around i was already this movie was exceeding my expectations visually now my question is how will acting do because oftentimes acting can become dated acting in the 40s is very different than acting these days and how will the story do but the look of this has got me in and i'm very very interested in the brainwashing 
I do have to ask, maybe I missed it during this whole brainwashing scene. You say they're in Manchuria. I guess I missed that. Uh, the whole time, I'm like, why is this the Manchurian candidate? I looked, I'm like, okay, Manchuria is in China. Maybe that's where Yen Lo is, this Chinese brainwasher who, who's conditioning them. But do they say they're in Manchuria? They took them all the way up there? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure how anyone would know that for sure. I'm not, I can't remember the specific line or detail that would infer that. But yes, it is said somewhere around here that they are in Manchuria, China. Yeah, I believe it's overtly said. But again, it's a confusing, disorienting scene. Yes. <laughs> you need to watch it several times to fully absorb all of the, its many different pleasures. But yes, basically we have left the Korean border where they were at and we are now fully into China, the people that are really pushing the communism into North Korea. And we're finding out that, yeah, this they have this Dr. Yin Lo from the Pavlov Institute, which I just love the idea that <laughs> we think about the conditioning of the damn dog, and that's what they're doing here to these soldiers. And Arnie, you bring up acting. Yin Lo, like, I don't know who this actor is. He's great. Like, he is funny. He's menacing. Like, I wish there was more Yin Lo in this film. I do like him. Yeah, he is. He comes across authoritative, but yeah, amusing and able to just stand up there. He, because of his look, I am thinking a little bit of a James Bond villain, but... Yeah, he's a little odd job. Yeah. Before odd job, one of us pointed out that Goldfinger probably took from this movie. And yeah, it, the screenwriter wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's. Boy, you wish that Mickey Rooney, this guy had played oh, no. the Mickey Rooney part here because, <laughs> yeah, there's funny here. The, another big difference from the novel is you'll never laugh reading that book. But here, it's a Hollywood production. They know they need to sprinkle in some humor, dark humor. Yeah, no, at one point, Yen Lo even says, you got to have a little bit of humor. Like, he is so sadistic, like the things he's going to make Shaw do. Like, yeah, it, it's almost a dark comedy, like, which shocked me for an American 1962 film. Yeah, it's definitely, it dances into camp and dark humor and that kind of thing, which I think is why it was so confusing and that people maybe, again, wouldn't have gotten this. They don't want to laugh at something like this. This is not funny. And of course, after Kennedy gets shot, it's really not funny. But I think that it, to miss the humor aspect of it is to miss a part of this movie that I most treasure. I think it's a better comedy than it is a thriller, actually. I saw some humor here, especially with Lowe. I can't say that I saw a lot of humor later. When we get to Janet Lee, I think maybe there's some humor there that I... I don't understand why that character's in this film. We'll talk about it. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, overall, I didn't find this movie very funny. I, I think it's funny all throughout, in a way that I probably shouldn't be laughing, but I'm always the person that laughs at inappropriate things. That Yin Lo is a big one for me, because again, like you see him like bringing up people, and you see old ladies holding knives, and here have my <laughs> scarf, and you think, what does that mean? And then you realize, oh my god, this guy, who Raymond is singled out, we're told, because he's a crack shot. We don't know that he's been singled out because he's Angela Lansbury's son. We just think that he's the best shot, the best marksman, best guy with a rifle of this whole troop. That's why they're going to make him be their Manchurian candidate. But we don't want to see him shoot. We, we want to see that he can kill somebody just by choking him with my scarf. And the fact that for the second kill, it's who's your favorite? We're going to kill whoever you like most. Yeah, which is Frank Sinatra, by the way, but he's got to give you the medal. So we pick somebody else, pick the 16-year-old. And I don't know if it's clear in the movie, but in the book. No, I didn't get it that he was 16. <laughs> yeah, they kill a 16-year-old here, shot right in the forehead. They say that he looks under 18, that he's probably underage and yet still somehow enlisted. 
And the worst part of it is the soldiers are like yawning and smoking and saying, yes, ma'am. Like to them, like this brutal, brutal scene that for the time and for now is to them like a yawn. And I like how when we get to see this through the view of Corporal Melvin, an African-American later on, we see that everybody there is African-American. Everybody is seeing this differently depending on their own background and what would, I guess, make them most comfortable. I don't think that audiences, again, I'd have to go back to like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane to see that kind of challenge where people are going to be asked to think. This movie asks a lot of the audience to pay attention to. And I think that, yeah, it's got to be confusing your first watch. And then you get it. I don't think it's too confusing. No, no, it's confusing at first, but then things click. And I was able to get it right away once it clicked. But an audience that has never seen a movie like this would be knocked back, shot in the forehead. Yeah, I mean, I found it easy to keep up with, but I come from the era of David Fincher, right? Yeah, it's modern. This sensibility, to put it succinctly, we're watching a movie that doesn't feel like from 1962. It feels like it could have come 10 years, 20 years, anytime, really. Again, it's Hollywood leaving behind the stodginess of the stage-bound, old-fashioned production and speaking in a young man's voice. But after we get all of this information, which again, I, is my favorite part of the movie, we've got to figure out what to do with Marco because he is having these dreams. The superiors are making him feel stupid for it. So he can't lead anymore. Uh, he's got PTSD, although they don't have a name for it. Let's give him public relations. You can just go <laughs> and deal with this new television thing that I don't know is all the rage now and we don't understand. This is where we really get to see Iceland for the nut job that he is, because during this press conference, Iceland's going to barge in and interrupt everything. And Gosh, that never happens today, does it? No, I can't <laughs> say I can think of anybody giving a speech where somebody else came in and interrupted them, unless you're discussing the press. You haven't watched any hearings where it's not about asking someone questions to see if they're credible to be a Supreme Court justice. It's so they could get up there and just rant about whatever topic they want. Like, All right, well, there is that. Yeah, and of course, you're saying Cinder Iceland, but we also see who's really in charge, because who's in the foreground? We have a television, we have him in the distance, and then we have him on television, and we understand that, that even though the other guy is screaming and trying to making his point, the only thing the audience at home is seeing is this Joe McCarthy type, but biggest in the frame of all is his wife, who's sitting there and kind of leaning in, like you mouthing some of the words, anticipating. She is controlling him already. This senator is nothing but a, a puppet, another Manchurian candidate to her. We may not suspect her as being the American controller because she's already got someone that's under her influence. But I didn't immediately think evil communist with this. I mean, way back to the founding fathers, they say behind every great man is a strong woman. And so I'm thinking, okay, we have a domineering woman, but that didn't scream evil to me yet. I figured it out eventually, but I thought they were just trying to do like parallel stories. Like this person's been brainwashed by the Soviets, but this could happen in your own family with this overbearing mother. I, but yeah, th those two storylines are going to merge at one point. I think you're supposed to feel, and again, audiences at the time would already have that fatigue and know all about Joe McCarthy. I think you're supposed to think that that family is evil because by this point, 
Joe McCarthy was out of public life. He was done. He he ruined it in his television witch hunt. It blew up in his face. So audiences eight years later would have known that he was the enemy and that she was being a part of that. You would not, I don't think, suspect that she is actually communist. Because he's so anti-communist and she's putting the words in his mouth, you believe that he's saying what she believes. Exactly. I went back to the movie that I put in our book, which was My Son John, which is so anti-communist, I think it comes around and mocks McCarthyism subtly. It's the reefer madness of the 1950s. It is. (laughs) And you're not wrong, Arnie. They actually said that they went to that movie to study it and to, to craft this mother character. Yeah, and so I thought for sure what would happen is this mother would disown her son. I mean, not to spoil my son, John, if that was on everybody's watch list to raise out for. Artie, it was on my mind only because I had to watch it for the book, though. (laughs) Yes, yes. It was very similar in the fact that a mother was realizing that her son was perverted, possibly because he's homosexual, possibly because he's a communist. Yes, she does a good thing in that propaganda film by reporting it to the authorities. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking that may be where this one goes, because the Icelands, the mother and the stepfather, are both so anti-communist. I thought they might be the heroes, you know? Murder she wrote, communist she detected. Wow. Heroes. I never took her as the hero. I always knew she was going to be some kind of villain. I, I Again, at first, I didn't guess that she was the American operator for the communist. Eventually, I'll figure that out. But no, I never took her as someone that was going to turn around and become the good guy. Well, the good guy in terms of turning my son in for a communist, you know. If she became the good guy in this, I would hate this movie. I feel like you're calling good guys the anti-communist and the communists the bad guys. Yeah, that's what I am saying. Yes, but but I don't feel like... I mean, you were familiar enough with Joe McCarthy to recognize they were doing that, right? I mean, you would know that this guy was not popular. Correct. But I'm not up on my McCarthyist history enough to know that at the time of the making of this movie, where did the Red Scare stand? Well, let me put it this way. If McCarthy were still in power, this movie wouldn't have been made, and everyone associated with it would have been thrown out on their ass. And in fact, Sinatra was listed many times as a communist, which is why he wanted to make this movie, and why he wanted to portray the senator so badly. I do think it's funny. Yeah, he has this disastrous PR thing at the TV broadcast, and he's going to get fired from that, too. Like, he just cannot get a break coming back from the war. Exactly. It's his life is ruined at the same time that Ray is just, you know, rising up the ranks and becoming this newspaper person. Yeah, he's falling apart, wondering where to go. And and the military just being like, uh, you figure it out, go to the beach and get a girl, which is kind of a joke, because the movie that Sinatra won an Oscar for, that's the famous scene, is a guy and a girl, a war vet making out in the surf or whatever in From Here to Eternity. But uh, he doesn't find the girl on the beach. He finds her on the train. Why does he find her? And she's not a secret agent. Like, I feel like they're talking in James Bond code during this whole scene. (laughs) Her name's Eugenie. I'm like, oh, like eugenics? Like, that's your hint that she's bad? And she's like, El Dorado 55970. I guess that's a phone number, but I thought it was a code word to get into someplace. I thought it was his trigger. Yes. I thought he was also a Manchurian candidate. And like, this was how it was going to trigger him. And she was the communist. Are you saying this is all supposed to be flirtation? This Like, she's not a secret government agent, too? It is a shock. And I couldn't remember the movie well enough to remember that she was end up just being the thankless girl part. 
that she's just supportive and she's going to fall in love with this. Because it's so charming to watch a guy unable to light a cigarette and have it fall into his drink. I mean, like, that's, <laughs> count me in. That's, I, I'm, I want to marry that right away. I mean, it's a thankless part. They make it quirky so that you really are on your toes. And a lot of this dialogue, this flirtation, it does feel like they're speaking in some kind of code. It comes from the book, although I won't say that it plays off any more naturalistic in the book. It ends up just feeling like, yeah, this is a woman that's kind of weird. And I feel like if she has a point in this film, it's that that her sexual power, because she's kind of domineering. She will bail him out. She will show the interest. She'll light his cigarette. So she bails him out, though, because he just happens to call her. He remembers El Dorado 59970. Again, I'm like, oh, this is obviously she's some agent because she's just everywhere when she needs to be. I think they don't want to give out a full phone number because people call it. That's like the old times of 555 in movies today. It's also in New York, even in the 90s, you'd say like Klondike something, something, something. And Klondike stood for KL, and it was supposed to be an easier way to remember phone numbers. I mean, where there were so many phone lines that you had different area codes in the same city, it became kind of a thing, which is why I stopped and looked up El Dorado and saw that it was a prefix for a telephone number. I'm just saying this is the most confusing scene in this movie that has some very confusing artful scenes in it. I wondered if, again, going back to kind of my My Son John thing, if this woman solely exists to say Sinatra's not gay. Because if he was gay, we might not root for him. I mean, that's basically the role she plays. Well, here's what I would say. That she, like the other women in this movie, coerces... But it's the reverse. She's the opposite of mother. Her sexual magnitude draws him out. He's in this fog and he can't remember what that dream was. It's after meeting her and having sex with her that he starts to be able to ID some of the people that were actually in the room and go, hey, it wasn't a ladies hydrangea club. It was actually the Fu Manchu guy. And he can go to the CIA and point out and... It's a subtext of this, but it's the fact that if he hadn't met her, I don't believe that he would come out of his conditioning. I don't know, because the reason he ends up in jail is he goes to see Shaw and Chun Chin, the interpreter that we saw in Korea at the beginning of the film, has shown up to just get a job. He'll do anything for Shaw. Yeah. And just pointing out a movie with many firsts. This is the first karate film ever to appear. An un-American movie. I know. I'm like, those are some weird moves. Those got to be real martial arts moves they're doing. Really? This is the first? I was thinking... First American. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking a lot about Bruce Lee and how that would come about in the 70s, but seeing Frank Sinatra karate chop a table, I'm like, wait a second. And he actually broke his finger on that. That movie, actually. <laughs> to that, to this last day, he had a warped finger because of that karate chop. It reminds me of Cato and, and Clouseau. If you see the Pink Panther movies, there's always this, <laughs> Peter Sellers is always fighting with his butler in this way. It's To me, it plays as comedy. I don't think it's supposed to. I think it would be a very brutal scene if you were watching it in 1962. And again, it's cut very hip and it's, you know, it's a fight scene. But I, I do feel like maybe a dated moment. One that comes off more as comedy to me than an actual, like, suspenseful moment of what's going to happen. Yeah, it's no Jackie Chan. Yeah, what I think of is Sinatra is never going to play himself for a fool. 
So if something's foolish, it's dated. It's not Sinatra intentionally looking silly. Meanwhile, we have Ray, and, and we're learning what is happening to him. It, that he was singled out. He was the killer. And now we are seeing those communist forces come to collect him and prepare him for his American handler. He is working at the newspaper, comes home to his nice apartment, very different life than Sinatra. Looking through his mail that Colonel Melvin has written to him, his best friend, and said, are you having dreams? I'm having dreams. And then he gets that phone call, and we learn about the importance of solitaire. Yeah, we've seen Shaw in those dreams. He's always moving his hands in this weird way. And yeah, finally, it, we find out that's his trigger. He's going to play solitaire until that Red Queen shows up and puts him in a trance. Queen of Diamonds, specifically. Sometimes they call it the Red Queen, and then... Well, because the red is connotative of Kami. Yes, I get and it. so they want that. <laughs> Don't miss that part. But would you think, when you look at that card, it does kind of look like Angela Lansbury. Does that give it away? I definitely thought that. Did you think that she was the American handler or or what came up for you when you saw the Red Queen? Well, yeah, I was wondering, why is it the Red Queen? Why is it not the king? A male figure, that's what you'd usually associate. At one point, they're going to say they use the queen, the queen of diamonds, because it's going to trigger some effect in him going back to his mother. I'm like, oh, okay, so she is the handler at that point. But it got me on that path when they first brought it up. I just thought Red, communism, and... Queen, it worked for me. I didn't think about Mother. I didn't think a queen looked like Angela Lansbury because it's the standard Hoyle card deck, you know? Right. I thought the Queen of Hearts would have worked just as fine, too. But it did usually seem to be the Queen of Diamonds. And then what what they're calling about is we're going to drag you. We're going to come up with this mock hit and run thing and we're going to bring you into a, a sanitarium that's actually like a, a dry out home for rich alcoholics and we're going to just make sure that the things we did to you two years ago are taking hold and i love again you could make a whole yin low movie for me like please do it yes <laughs> when he rolls back in here and talks about like i have to go shopping in macy's for the wife and all of that I just love it no i love it like the soviets are like yes we have to stay on this floor because we're turning profits on all the other ones he's like <laughs> Turning profit? Like, it's great. Yeah, this is honestly my favorite scene of the movie is Yin Lo coming off threatening. Like, watch out. You're going to start loaning money for profit if you keep doing this. Not only that, but when the Russian is kind of like, well, we need to have him kill something, that look he gives him, you're like, for a second, I believed it too. I was like, he's going to kill you. And (laughs) no, it's just a joke. Air quotes around joke. But yeah, like Yin Lo is deserving of being a Bond villain. Honestly, he should have had the whole movie. He's... He's almost as fun as Angela Lansbury. I mean, it wouldn't have been as shocking an ending, but having him be the handler giving all the instructions would have made the movie more comedic. For sure. And again, I just think of this this screenwriter who comes from Billy Wilder comedy is like Seven Year Itch or Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is a movie I don't really like. But again, the lightness and the funness of taking dark material and finding comedy and all of that. I do feel like that is an example of a a good book becoming better as a movie. That doesn't really usually happen, but I actually feel like the movie is better than the book because of the screenwriter's light touch with the comedy. And so, yeah, we need to see if he suffers from the symptoms of guilt and fear, the uniquely American symptoms, and see if he can kill without remorse. Because we now have it explained to us that what they wanted to have was a was an assassin who doesn't remember who he kills and therefore is police proof. He's, he's mind washed and dry cleaned. He won't rat them out. 
And so they have him go kill his boss. There's an extra benefit. If he succeeds, maybe he'll get the job. That was a bigger part in the book. I'm not sure it really matters here. And again, I was wondering, is there some kind of subtext about homosexuality? Again, these are stereotypes, but he goes to kill Gaines. Like, does he, is he wearing his wife's, like his deceased wife's nighty or something? It's a bed jacket, Jacob, a bed jacket. And I have one that looks just as masculine. No, no, he, yeah, it's, it's again, it's just a funny moment that isn't funny. And I always appreciate when you can make me laugh in a scene where I know what's going to happen. We all know that he's here to kill and it should be creepy. And yet we get this little, laughing just a surprise before the predictable fall he's a widower that still wears his wife nighty and is that in any way talking about ray and his mother issues i don't know it's a, it's a theme i will recognize the movie has been criticized for being misogynistic and you can see many examples of domineering women emasculating men in this film but by this point, Sinatra has, we're about halfway through the film, and Sinatra has realized, I, again, I think in part because of Janet Lee, the one thing that she does, other than being a sounding board when he's alone, is that she has given him regular sex, and that's sort of restored his virility and his all-American girl, you know, has brought that out in him. And now he can work with the feds and the CIA and see, like, he's going to profile his old army buddy and see what he knows and pick his brains and see what what his role is in all of this subterfuge. This is where we get the flashback and Ray starts telling us about his life before the war. Yeah, and Shaw here is he's so stiff and, and really he is unlikable. Like Very. We, we are told throughout the film like no one likes him and like yeah, why why would you make your protagonist like this so you don't feel bad when he's going to have to get killed before he tries to assassinate the president why would you do this and then once we get this backstory i feel so bad for the guy i understand why he's got such a huge chip on his shoulder like he falls in love with this uh, senator jordan's daughter and like that evil mother of his breaks it up like writes some nasty letter and like oh it really made me feel for shaw at this point the relationship that forms here where he's bitten by a snake and this woman comes out of nowhere with just the right things and takes off her top. Yeah, it seems unreal. <laughs> it seems almost as fake. I thought it might be the result of the brainwashing. Like, this was not something that really happened. Yeah, it's campy. She talks about how, how her father had that fear of snakes, and she even throws out a joke. Uh, you know, we could get into the whole Freudian aspect of this. Again, that weird subtext that may or may not be here, that father being afraid of a phallic symbol. Like, it's bizarre, though. You have to realize Freud has only been dead for 20 years. He is the dominant thinker when it comes to psychology and all the things. They, they did bring in people from the realm of psychology to try and deconstruct all of this. I think that, you know, one of the things that Freud no longer anyone believes, but he promoted was the idea that men want to kill their father, marry their mother. And so, yeah, that theme is, is playing throughout this movie. Do you have sympathy for Ray, though? I do feel like Lawrence Harvey is not lovable. And maybe the most difficult part of enjoying this movie is his performance. Although I don't know, you know, it's a tough role. He lays the melancholia on thick, and I really feel like he's just kind of a pill. I don't like this character so much. I don't know if it's the actor or the way that it's written. He is so stiff. And again, I don't think he ever becomes likable, but I at least I understand him in this moment. I, I get why he's become this bitter person that, that just doesn't want any connections with anyone, you know, because of this awful mother. 
So again, yeah, I, I don't know if that makes for a great character, the way this actor plays it. I don't, for me, he just seemed a, a little bit too old. Uh, I would picture people coming back from the ward, not, you know. So there's things like that. He's as old as Frank Sinatra. If you're going to go with Sinatra, yeah. Who seems too old too. <laughs> yeah, they're all too old. I agree with that. But and, and British. I want to point out this actor has a heavy British accent. He tries to disguise it. But I actually, I end up feeling like that's a strength of this movie because what it shows is that He's speaking in his mother's voice. She has a British accent as well. And so that's the influence, right? Of like, he doesn't talk like other people from America. He talks like her. Okay, so he is British. I didn't realize. I thought it might be, again, going back to the Red Scare, people who were more educated. I thought he might just be speaking in that erudite kind of way i didn't know if finishing school yeah the, the elocution can be i mean it is the queen's english that's what they teach you they almost teach a, a form of english accent in the proper school so yeah i mean that's what they were going with and it ends up working for me but I, he is my biggest complaint i think with this movie my thinking is i didn't like him at all i just thought he was stiff bad guy i mean we knew he was the one brainwashed He's such an asshole to everyone. But once we get through that story and where he talks about being unlovable, he becomes pitiable. I feel sorry for his situation, and I actually come to like the character. The more these two guys get together, the more I come to like him. And I'm not a huge Sinatra fan, so I end up liking them about equally in this film. Sinatra's pretty good here. Or, or let me put it this way. It's the best I've ever seen him. And we've seen him now in a few things, and usually he's kind of walking through it. Like, he doesn't have a whole lot of acting chops, but... Yeah, he seems more passionate about this one than Ocean's Eleven or that Die Hard film that wasn't Die Hard. Well, here's one thing I learned about him. I don't know if we brought it up on those other shows, but he's a one-take guy. And that's true in the recording studio, and that's true in the acting. I come on, I do it once, and we're done. I'm not doing that again. So if it went great, terrific. If I screwed up the line or you have the boom mic in the shot or whatever, you're going to have to figure it out because I'm not doing it again. And so that made the director kind of crazy on this film. There's actually a shot of him later on that's out of focus. They ended up convincing him to come back and do it. And they're like, you're right. You're not good on the second or third take. We'll have to use the out of focus <laughs> shot because Sinatra feels he's a big believer in spontaneity. And so you can see that he cares. What comes across is, even though it's not a remarkable Oscar winning performance, is he feels more tapped in to what's going on. There's, a, there's an intensity to him that I didn't see in Ocean's Eleven. See, I did notice that out of focus shot, but because there were so many other shots in this film out of focus, I couldn't tell. I'm like, did the cinematographer just fuck up or was this a style? Yeah, they ended up going with it. They tried to say that, well, that's the POV because this man is under mind control and he's looking at Sinatra. But the truth is the focus polar just fucked up. That's that's all that really <laughs> that really happened. See, but yeah, I did take it when you're we in these dreams. Maybe it's just the haziness of the dream. So it didn't bug me that much. It didn't. But I'll tell you one thing that does bug me. The biggest coincidence we have to swallow is this costume party. No, no. Ray, before even any of that, the way that we figure out that playing cards, the way that Marco figures figures out that playing cards are the control is that Ray is just waiting for him at a bar and the barkeep just happens to be telling a story where he mentions playing solitaire and oop, 
give me a deck of cards. And, and the barkeep has some cards. I, I guess that was normal in the 50s. Just play cards while you're drinking your beer. Hey, you got to do something if you're an alcoholic and a day drinker. Go jump in a lake. All of this feels like, I don't know, something for children or something like they should have figured out a better way. Yeah, was this in the book? Because, yeah, this didn't seem great. It was. It's a. It's it's just a bad way of figuring it out. It was too obvious. It's because Marco wasn't that important in the book. What they were spending their time on was talking about what happened to Ray's real father. And he ended up killing himself because the mother married his business partner. And, again, all the stuff that mattered to the author was telling the family dynasty. And so when it came to the plot mechanics of how does this guy that's showing up at the end figure everything out... Eh, whatever. He went in the bar and somebody said solitaire, jump in a lake, and he does. Like, that's that was good enough to get through the last 50 pages of the book. But the screenwriter is good enough, I would have thought that he could have come up with something better. Yeah, it felt like a Bugs Bunny thing. Mm, very. Definitely a Looney Tunes, Tex Avery choice. In fact, I think I would be willing to bet Elmer Fudd has done this. <laughs> but it does tell the way, as contrived as it is, it does clue in Sinatra as to what the conditioning is. Right. And he he's, he remembers it, actually. He goes, that Chinese cat, meaning Yin Lo, he used that face card of the Queen of Diamonds because it is reminiscent of Ray's mother. And he must have known that Ray has such passionate feelings about his mother that if the mother controls him, that mother card can control him. I don't think we're still supposed to know yet. Yeah, I don't think we're supposed to, but that that's what gave it away to me. Yeah, we're getting there anyway. I mean, they're they're rushing to this costume party. Eleanor has had a change of heart. The communist tart she chased away four years ago is now someone she wants her son to marry. Did she really want him to marry him? Because it sounded like she had plans for this big grand wedding. And again, to me, it sounds like a publicity stunt to help her husband's career. But or was it a plan? I know it goes wrong because of this coincidence of the costume that Josie's going to wear. But was the plan all along to get this relationship going again so he could kill Senator Jordan? I think she tries first the other way. If your daughter marries my son, maybe you'll be under my influence. Maybe you'll just do what I want you to do, Democratic Senator Tom Jordan. But when she confronts him at the costume party held in Josie's honor, and she's trying to say, we're, we're trying to make good on what my son did to chase this woman away. He's like, I'm not only am I not going to support your husband becoming vice president, but I'm actually going to impeach you <laughs> and go after you for every cent that I had. And, and there are hard feelings that he is not putting away. And so she realizes she has to use her assassin. I do like that when we first meet this guy, he's like, yes, I know your mother and father or stepfather. I had to sue him for $65,000. <laughs> and then he gave it to this thing called the American Civil Liberties Union. Yeah, that was funny, too. And notice they <laughs> position him. He's standing in front of an American Eagle. It makes him look like he has angel wings. You know right there that, like, this guy's probably dead. <laughs> I did not catch the angel wings behind him. But you definitely know when he crosses her. You know that, like, you just don't yeah. do that. And, and again, she's all the political operator. She's the one doing the moves. The husband, the senator, the one supposedly in power. It's funny how the people that actually hold the power, like the president 
and the Senator Johnny and all, barely in the background, like not the important ones. This movie, again, talks about power being not what you see in the back. He is wearing an Abe Lincoln costume and doing limbo underneath her Bo Peep crook, which again, (laughs) she's a sheep herder. She's the one in control. I got the symbolism, yep. And Abe Lincoln, also a big theme in this movie. Almost every scene in the house, there's an Abe Lincoln bust or a picture. It may not be clear why until you realize it's all about assassination. But of course, what they're telling you throughout this movie, this will end in a president being shot. Ah, that's why the Lincoln is everywhere. Yeah, I noticed Lincoln showing up. I thought maybe the joke was Honest Abe, and these are all dishonest people. I wasn't sure what what the intent was, but I did notice a lot of Lincolns in this. To me, I mean, they didn't say, but to me, he is a figure we associate with. I mean, there was that guy in 1901 that got shot by the Arnica. Was that McKinley? I, I can't even remember. There was a president in between that got shot, but it wouldn't mean anything to me if they showed a bust of him. Abe Lincoln and I get it. <laughs> And to me, it is so far-fetched. It's actually funny is, you know, we see the mom take Shaw into this room, play solitaire, but she's going to take that red queen so no accidents happen. And then Josie walks in dressed as the Queen of Diamonds. Yeah, another improbable coincidence. It's not even a practical costume. (laughs) No. (laughs) I like, I was cracking up. I'm like, that's so dumb. It's actually kind of funny. Again, this is where I would call this movie a comedy because they do that kind of, because it's so ridiculous. This thing is too heightened to be believed. But again, the implication is that she's sex. She's more powerful than mother because she can take his virginity and he's happy to go with her and... They get married, like they hop a plane and they actually go, not only are they going to go hook up, but they're actually going to go to Vegas, even though they haven't seen each other in three or four years. Yeah, I I would be shocked that she'd be down for that after this scathing letter she supposedly received, but I I guess all is forgiven. And again, if you read the book, you knew the content of the letter is, my son is a homosexual, which would have frightened them off for lots of different reasons. But he proves that he's not. And keep in mind, this is the lady who took off her shirt to help with a snake bite the first time she met this guy. I don't think of her as the most discerning of people when it comes to this. She seems rather impulsive. She's just like Rosie, honestly. Like, she has the same morals and eagerness that Janet Lee does. All the women in this really are man-hungry, power-hungry, use their sex as a, as a way of controlling and you know, it's having an effect because Ray is making great jokes like, I'm Gaucho Marx. I did not get the joke, but I thought it was hilarious. He thought it was a funny joke. It's, it's like me saying, hey, have you guys heard of Jim Carrey? Ha ha, I made a joke because I referenced a funny person. Except it's Groucho Marx, not Gaucho Marx. He's wearing a, a, a Spanish Gaucho outfit. I mean, it would make more sense if he had a mustache and, like, the glasses of Groucho Marx. (laughs) I guess that's why I misunderstood what he said, and he looked nothing like Groucho Marx. (laughs) Groucho Marx. Groucho, yeah. Yeah, Groucho (laughs) and Gaucho. It's, again, even when you get it, it's not hilarious. No, it's, I thought that was the point, that it wasn't a funny joke. But the point is that, exactly, this stiff, who, like, the second he met her was like, I want to get married to your daughter, and has just never, like, cracked a smile, and is always, her mother is always complaining, like, you look like you just you know your head is a pointy head like you're so unhappy all the time why do you have to be so melancholic because i'm getting laid now mom i needed to get <laughs> laid you you kept me away from the putang and now i got it and we have what's pretty chaste now but racy for the time this couple going to bed together and a lot of kissing means i'm not a virgin anymore 
No, I, I got that it would have been racy for the time. It, that comes through. And he sees on the on the TV that there's my stepdad accusing my new wife's father of being high treason. Again, a Roy Cohn tactic. If they say that they're going to impeach you, you turn around and say, I'm going to impeach you. And so now we have, yes, yeah, Senator Isalan going after Senator Jordan. So he's going to do something about it. And that's when, yeah, we have Eleanor being like, no, 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 I got the deck of cards. This is where I make you do what has to be done. And again, this feels pretty brutal for a 1962 film when he goes and he shoots Jordan. And then, yeah, when Josie walks in, I'm like, oh, damn, is he going to kill her too? And yeah, he does. Yeah. I mean, the shot through the milk thing, it's again, kind of plays as a joke. I mean, to me, it's a little bit funny. But I, I also recognize that it's raw. And certainly the fact that he shot his own wife, who was running to the aid of her father, like, it's icky feelings, even though it's, I don't know, maybe I'm just an asshole, but it's kind of funny to me. And I don't know if you're ever supposed to like Shaw, like, this is not your standard protagonist. Maybe Marco is the protagonist of this film. And, he is. And Shaw is just, he, I mean, Shaw literally is a pawn in this movie, just being moved around by other people, but... I do, like you said, Arnie, it's about pity. I like It's hard to like him, even though he's been brainwashed. I mean, he shoots his wife. It's very brutal the way it plays out. Here's the thing is, A, I realize it's not any more his fault than it is the gun in his hand's fault. He is a weapon. He's not choosing to do this. And second, I knew it was coming the moment he walked in the house. I don't know why his wife is still living with her father. But when they said back... At the rehab center where he was with Dr. Lowe, when they said, if anyone witnesses you killing, kill them too. I'm like, well, that's going to come into play. It didn't come into play when we killed the newspaper guy. Oh, he's going to kill his wife. Got it. And then forget, even as tears are streaming down his face as he's stepping outside, by the time he's making the phone call to Marco, he's like, why would anyone do this to my new wife? I can't believe what's happened. And Marco knows. I mean, he knows when he reads the headline. He goes to Rosie and says, Ray did it and I feel responsible. And he should, because why aren't they hauling this guy in now? They have enough proof to know this guy is under their control, killing people right and left. It's really on the CIA that they're going to let him like go do something at the convention and, and not even have a tail on him. Yeah, that is the weird part is they don't have a tail on him. I, I kind of get the reasoning. They want to they want to find out who the American operator is for the communist. And so they have to let this happen. But yeah, I, I also think this is a joke, right? Like if I just show you more Queen of Diamonds, then my control is better than the other ones. Like if I have a whole deck, which they set up as a magic trick <laughs> earlier. But if I show you all 52 Queen of Diamonds, <laughs> then you'll listen to me over anyone else. It's kind of silly. I mean, again, to me, I feel like this movie is terrifying probably for the audience of the time and brutal even now to a degree. Certainly when you consider the fact that the president got shot the next year, it makes it tougher to laugh, right? You're more of an asshole if you're laughing at this. But I do think that comedy is baked in here. And I, I don't know if it's always intentional, but I appreciate that I'm laughing throughout this movie. See, I'm not laughing once we get into this part of the movie. I'm not finding it funny. I'm finding it... I'm glad we're starting to get into the killings. It took a while to get here. This is what I knew about the Manchurian Candidate, is he was a sleeper agent. He was a murderer. We spend a 
hell of a lot of time getting to know about Shaw's romance and things, and with Janet Lee on a train before we get to this. And so I'm now excited. I feel like we're finally in a thriller, whereas before, I don't know what we're in, a drama, a, a comedy? Dark comedy is what I would call it. But yes, the, the climax is all suspense. It's very Hitchcockian in the idea of we're going to build up. It, it feels like the ending of uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, actually, in the way that they have an assassin and can you get to it? It's, it's a similar climax. With a little bit of Psycho, too, because you got Mother. Psycho is definitely on the mind. Yeah, he's a little normal. Norman Bates that, again, has some weird sexual hangups with his mother, and she's going to seal the deal. Frank Sinatra might have a bunch of Queen of Diamonds, but she is going to lay it on thick. She's going to invite him over. She's got that giant Queen of Diamonds costume still that Josie left behind. Well, do you get the idea? I mean, it's they literally say it in the book that she sleeps with him. Do you get from the kiss that happens? That the mother does? Oh, yes. Oh, I got that from the kiss. Absolutely. I mean... Okay, I thought that kiss was weird, but yeah, that never crossed my mind that they actually slept together. Sex is the seal the deal. And so in order to bring him back in the fold, and because I think she kind of... She wants it. I mean, I think that it's a way it's like loving her own power. Because keep in mind, at this time, women were were not allowed to have these these offices. And so they did have to, they were behind the man. They, They couldn't run as senators themselves. You get the feeling that's what she would rather be doing. She could be out there killing no one. And just a couple decades later, she would be the star. But she has to hide behind these weak men and control them and use her sex to do that. Well, if that's what it takes, then that's what she's going to do here. And we do get this monologue from her that she's actually upset that that it was her son that was chosen to be the assassin and that they took his soul and that she's going to get some kind of revenge once the communists take power. Like, there does feel something personal to her because it was her son. Yeah, that was an interesting... I had forgotten that detail and it does stick out at you of, like, she's angry at everyone. She's not even in bed with the communists. In the end, she's going to get them to... Everyone is a target. I mean, the height of paranoia is that I want all the power and I'm going to get you all. You know, they did this to you. They picked you. I didn't know it was going to be you. When I told you to stay away from that girl, I didn't know that you were going to go off to war and become the Manchurian candidate I requested. But now that I know that, then, yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to get them because they they bound me to them. And I think that's what she resents. She doesn't want to be in the thrall of anyone else's control or of anyone else's power. Yeah, I never got her as an ideologue. I got her as power hungry. I mean, I don't know that she is pro-communism. I don't know that she's reading Marx on the side. I think she just was offered power, but then... Yeah, it's monkey's paw. She wanted the perfect assassin. The perfect assassin is your son slash weird lover. Yeah. And again, I think she only does that. Well, again, we could we could spend all day. I get Freudian theories about abound throughout this movie. But I do feel like it helps her bring him back into the fold. And we think he is actually going to kill Benjamin Arthur, a name we haven't heard, but is actually at the top of the ticket. He's going to be, it's worth pointing out, the presidential nominee. He is not winning the White House. He is becoming, they never use a party name, but I will just go ahead and say the Republican presidential nominee. And her thought is, I prepped my husband, the VP, with such a great speech that voters will feel so bad when this president gets shot. 
and moved by what his speech will be that he'll have to go into the White House. I love how she goes into detail, like as he's covered in blood, he's going to read this speech that I've worked on for eight years, like the most brilliant minds of the Soviet Union has devised this speech. Like it is like a pretty great villain moment. Powers that will make martial law seem like anarchy. That's such a great line. And it's also worth noting that it hasn't always been the case that a president chooses their vice presidential candidate themselves. Yeah. I mean, for a long time in American history, imagine... The loser got to be the VP at at the early days. Yeah, could you just imagine (laughs) Trump as president and Biden as VP? (laughs) I mean, it was in the 1800s still that they began running as a team, but what I get from the conversations is Iceland has not been picked as the VP candidate They're voting on the VP candidate at the convention. I took it differently that he was the VP candidate, and if he killed a presidential candidate, well, then he would just rise up to take that spot. But Jordan was going to block the nomination. If Iceland was nominated, which he hadn't been yet, Jordan was going to object and bring out all of his evidence. That's why Jordan had to die. And so, you know, these days the convention is merely a political rally slash public relations event. It's like a movie premiere. It's like, here's the person we already knew it was going to be. Right. But it used to be a big thing where people were actually decided and delegates actually did their voting at the time. So I got that going into this, Angela Lansbury had the people lined up for Iceland, but Iceland was a surprise VP pick at that nomination time. It was not... Whoever the president is, I I didn't catch that name you said, Stuart. I have no idea who's running for president. Who cares who the president is? Because that's not where the power is. The power is behind the scenes, that deep state. And just to be clear, Iceland was not also a brainwashed agent. He was just a really dumb guy that Angela Lansbury could control once he became president. Yeah, the way that I see it is that she was able to control him without having to go to communist. But in order to get all the way to the White House... She had to get aid from Yin Lo. And so, yeah, we have this classic standoff of we know that as soon as the president makes this phrase here, my life before my liberty, that is when Ray pulls the trigger from the spotlight tower inside Madison Square Garden. And I'll have to say, as silly as the 52 Queen of Diamonds versus the giant Queen of Diamond costume were, like, it had me in suspense. Would he fall back under his mother's power? Was he a free agent at this point? He didn't call in to Marco like he was supposed to, to tell him what the plot. This seemed like another big coincidence. Marco just notices what the the lights out and so he goes towards there to find Shaw taking aim that the light is on I mean it's more noticeable to notice a light on where it shouldn't necessarily be so okay that's what it was I yeah I, no, I wasn't sure what cued him off to go check that area couldn't he yell bomb threat couldn't he pull the fire alarm like it just it's quite hubris to think I can run there in time it's also funny to me that they specifically say thus bringing my attention to If it were a bomb, you wouldn't not evacuate people here. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. If this were a bomb, you'd get everyone the hell out. But then they stop and put their hand on their heart and stand still for the national anthem. Yes. (laughs) Like, if it were a bomb, wouldn't you do something about it? Yeah. It strains credibility. Maybe it speaks to the times and how different we think now. I don't, maybe all of the above. But I agree. It's a good suspense piece. It it really feels like the, the most exciting part of the movie is right here at the end. A nice detail, too, that Ray is... Dressed like a priest.
least sexless, right? Like standing in a room that has, you can see where the grips had put up nudies from their centerfolds and all of that on the wall. Like the whole idea of sex has been worked in so well throughout this. And then, yeah, he does not kill who he's supposed to. And this is a change from a book, too. It should be said that they actually had it that Marco programmed Ray to kill his mother and his stepfather. And I think they thought, eh, too dark for Sinatra fans in 62. Maybe after The Godfather, we can accept him after a monster. I don't know. This ending's pretty dark. But uh, (laughs) we just to have the hero take out Angela Lansbury as a hit. I don't know. It worked in the book. I feel like that would have worked in a movie, but I do like that there is that suspense that we don't know what Shaw is going to do. Is he going to shoot the president? Is he going to listen to Marco? Obviously, something's gone wrong because he didn't report to Marco. So the fact that he, as soon as he takes out his stepdad, I'm like, oh, Angela Lansbury is next. Surely <laughs> enough, she is. And I love the fact that he like puts on the Medal of Honor, which has been, again, yes. he never <laughs> wanted it. It's been lying in a pile of trash throughout the movie. He, he at last earned it. He at last feels like, yeah, I've done something honorable for the first time in my life. I did something to make America better. And then I was so shocked he turns the gun on himself and shoots himself. I wasn't. I knew he couldn't get out of it alive. I mean, he killed his wife. Oh, I figured Sinatra would vouch for him and and everything would be fine because that's how films end in the 50s. Yeah, I just... He had been too far gone to survive it, I think. Yeah, the happy ending, and you do have to have one in 62, is that Marco has been saved. Ray couldn't be saved, but Marco has Rosie. He's going to get married to her. All the dreams that Ray wanted that he can't achieve... Marco Sinatra, the one that we like, again, has been overemphasized in this theatrical telling because we need heroes here. It's too dark, right? We can be okay with losing Ray because the bad guys were foiled and the good guy is going to have a happy ending. But still pretty cynical, I got to say. It's hard to feel like this is going to like cheer everyone up, particularly during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, it's... I don't know that the eulogy he gets at the end where he was a hero, it felt a little overwrought. It, this movie doesn't often feel dated, but Sinatra's end monologue really does. Oh, so to me, it kind of played like it was forced, like he was trying to, you know, put a spin on this. And that was the irony that it wasn't something to celebrate. You know, you did have to do the recap for everyone to make sure that they got it. it I'm just as glad it wasn't like Psycho, where it was 10 minutes <laughs> long. You know, like people wanted to end down in the cellar. And then there's 10 minutes of a psychiatrist explaining he was mother, but he wasn't. Like, OK, so Frank Sinatra gives 30 seconds here to his new wife looking out in the rain. The end. Okay. So Jacob Stewart, did the Manchurian candidate hit the target? Jacob. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, I felt I really knew what the concept of this film was about. What surprised me so much watching it is how it went about telling that story, that it did feel so different than American films at the time, that it felt experimental with that editing, especially with the hypnosis scene towards the beginning. That whole thing just blew my mind that I couldn't believe this was happening in an American film at that time. It's just not something I would expect. The dark comedy, like the sense of we may be playing into this paranoia, but we're going to make jokes about like communists also being capitalists and turning profits at their hospitals. Like I just, I wasn't expecting any of that. I was expecting something to be much more dry, much more 
Eisenhower 1950s, like American films or my perception of American films were at that time. And so not only was I, I think this is an intriguing story that I that definitely plays into what many Americans have felt over the last not just four years, but I, I, I think throughout decades time. But I, I, yeah, decades. But I, I think it really has boiled over. You know, it's the Russians. It's the Chinese like. Who knows who the Manchurian candidate is? is? Is there one or is it all just paranoia that that we're afraid to accept the other side and really listen to them? It's not a perfect movie, but it is a great movie. Like the acting isn't always there. The focus may not always yeah. be in focus. But again, I am so pulled into this thing and so blown away that you could get something like this in 1962. It's definitely got my vote. Recommend. Strong recommend. Stuart. Yeah, it's undoubtedly a groundbreaking thriller. It builds on the technical accomplishments that I saw pioneered by Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock. And then it pairs those things with this new political cynicism that, again, wasn't strange love was still years away. So I feel like, yeah, it's really a cool movie and hard not to marvel at its prescience of the story, which makes me wonder, has too much been made out of the fact that it has these similarities to JFK? Would we still call it a classic if Manchurian Candidate came out the day after, like November 23rd, 1963. I think a lot of it is that we are amazed by what it saw coming as much as what it said about the 50s. I think that if this movie were just a thriller, we would say, yeah, it's dated. The things here, the plot hinges on some amazing coincidences. I'm not the biggest fan of some of the acting. Janet Lee, what is she doing in this film? Why is she in the film? Yeah, cut it off. But it kind of all works as a joke. And I do feel like for me, this movie is smart enough to play ridiculousness as camp. And so while it may not be a classic thriller, like a perfect thriller, I do think it is a brilliant political satire. I do really think its importance extends beyond predicting Kennedy being killed the way he was and really predicting hippie cinema and the late 60s and my favorite decade of Hollywood, the 1970s. I think it's the best film work Sinatra or Lansbury ever did. Better dark comedy than thriller, but a very solid recommend. And I guess I'm still bumping my head up against the lionized classics in that I feel this movie is a little bit uneven. I love the beginning where we're learning about the brainwashing and when Frank Sinatra is starting his investigation and he's like, what were you doing with your hands? And then realizes, oh, you were playing solitaire and all of that. But I think the movie loses its way so many times, including some of the stuff you said, Stuart. Janet Lee cut her from this movie, cut her entirely or give her something to do. I mean, she'd been a psycho, paying attention to Janet Lee, and she's useless here. And a lot of the stuff in the middle about the romance, it's setting up the ending, but I feel like it really, it drags in the middle. So it's got some pacing problems, but it's got some amazing camera work. It's definitely a recommend, but I don't think... It's a perfect film. I don't see all of the comedy you do, Stuart. Whenever Dr. Lowe's around, I am laughing, but... Is it as good as My Son John? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's more serious than My Son John. I know I didn't feel... Is it? I felt that was had more serious intentions. I, again, I, I think that for me, again, the, the comedy is there throughout and it's what makes the movie special. It's a solid recommend from me. I enjoyed the film. I just don't think I'm as hot on it as you two are, but I like the film. I definitely think it's worth checking out. 
I think that it still has ideas that resonate today. Unfortunately, a lot of what I liked about it is the twists at the end with Angela Lansbury and things I did not see coming. So if you've listened to this show, half the fun's already gone in my mind. And if you want more, if you did enjoy it like we did, then I think that you can look at what these people made right after. John Frankenheimer's next movie was another film... Kurt Douglas is going to discover that a bunch of generals are throwing a coup and overturning the American president. Written by Rod Serling. It's called Seven Days in May. It's a little talkier. doesn't have as many cool visual scenes. But if you want to see more of Frankenheimer dealing with the deep state, Seven Days of May, that's a recommend. This author as well. He ended up speculating about JFK's assassination. And he wrote a book about it called Winter Kills. Got made into a movie with Jeff Bridges. Hey, that's in the book too. I put it in the book, and I, it's a goofier than this man. It's really comedy. Hard to miss the comedy in that one. Oh, yeah. But I do think that, yeah, there there was a lot. This movie pioneered a whole sensibility about politics as the country changed, too. It's worth saying, I don't think if you polled people before 1962, many people would believe that government could be so corrupt. Now look at us. And so it will be the challenge of the 2004 Manchurian candidate to reinvent some of these Cold War politics and find a new way of telling the old story. I have not seen it. Please don't tell me. I, I want to be surprised, but I, I'm trying to figure out, is the Shah in that film going to be controlled by, I don't know, Saddam Hussein? I, I'm trying to figure out how it's going to work with W. Bush's politics. Well, not unlike this movie, there are they have the Korean War is the first Iraq war, and they're able to build it to the second Iraq war, and it will be about that political climate they actually put it out before the elections they they wanted to make a statement and we'll see how successful they were as we figure out what happens with this election cycle next week so thank you for joining us we didn't exactly take your mind off of the events going on today i how could you nope we all made you more paranoid god bless you (laughs) if you can ignore all of this i don't know how anyone does i don't know how anyone pays attention to a tremors movie or our cloverfield movie (laughs) but if you need more paranoia this friday 10 cloverfield lane it is available for people who donate at the platinum level for our current donation drive and also While you're at our site looking at the donation drive, subscribe to our In Focus newsletter. Every Friday, Jason has been putting out a newsletter with some contributions from three of us as well as everybody involved with Now Playing, and it summarizes the week's movie news, lets you know what's going on with Now Playing's schedule, what we're watching that we're not reviewing, and more. Just go to the Now Playing podcast homepage, hit subscribe at the top, And then you'll see the In Focus newsletter. Just enter your email address. Plus, if you've been listening for a while, we use that newsletter for a lot of giveaways. We gave away 10 copies of Tremors Shrieker Island. If you like the Manchurian Candidate, you'll love Tremors Shrieker Island. (laughs) We gave away Psycho, too. So, yeah, I I do feel like it's really cool. And I want to really say Jason does a great job with it. I feel informed when I read it. I'm like, ooh, I didn't even know this about you guys. And the information that gets shared and all this work that he puts into it, it's worth your time. So you'll find that at nowplayingpodcast.com. So thank you so much for listening to this show. And until next time, the wires have been pulled. They can't touch you anymore. You're free. Look, it's out of you. And you are still alive. That's the good news. What's the bad news? Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. You may go. 
We hope you've enjoyed the show. B, I thought you were magnificent tonight. And so did all the network campaign experts. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. I'm very glad to hear that, sir. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. You couldn't have stopped them. The army couldn't have stopped them. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Help me. Help me. Shoot me. Help me or shoot me. Make a decision. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. All right. Now let's start unlocking a few doors. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. They can make me do anything, Ben, can't they? Anything. Find the details on our website. Cash is king, Marco. Cash is king. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Darling, something very important has come up. There is something you have to do. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Are you following me? I am. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. People adore you. They crave your company. And yet here you are, holed up as if you were some sort of emotionally challenged individual like your father. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Congratulations, son. How do you feel? Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. I served them. I fought for them. And they paid me back by taking your soul away from you. Now Playing credits read by Brock. The speech is short, but it's the most rousing speech I've ever read. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Oh, God, where are all the men anymore? My father, Tyler Prentice, never asked, is this okay, is this okay? He just did what needed to be done. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Have you noticed that the human race is divided into two distinct and irreconcilable groups? Those who walk into rooms and automatically turn television sets on, and those who walk into rooms and automatically turn them off. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Stop talking like an expert all of a sudden and get out there and say what you're supposed to say. 
Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. You may put the cards away now. Goodbye, But when he's on that plane, which was Sinatra's real plane, I mean, they got that for the million dollars. Yeah, he, I'll loan you my plane for a day. <laughs> it won't fly, but you can come aboard. It's got a bar. <laughs> and some flashing lights that look out of Star Trek. Keeps the pain out of campaigning. Yeah. <laughs>